Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back once again with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. We'll be taking you through the May 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Recognizing and Managing Emerging Infectious Diseases in the Emergency Department. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why in the world are we covering this topic? Certainly a fair point, which I hope you have an answer to. Of course. While it's true that the odds of encountering an emerging infection on a specific ED shift are really incredibly low, the consequences to the patient, to your hospital coworkers, and to society can be profound. And if avoiding profound consequences to your patient, colleagues, and society isn't enough to entice you, we're going to make this podcast short and sweet with simple and easy-to-remember recommendations, thanks to a very well-written review by this month's authors, Dr. Milan, Thomas Pelosi, and Dr. Egan from Mount Sinai St. Luke's and Mount Sinai West of New York City. We should also recognize the editors, Dr. Bao and Dr. Merchant of Brigman Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Remember that a sound means we're about to give away the answer to one of the CME questions at the end of the article. Be sure to get your CME credit after listening. So let's start with the obvious question. What in the heck is an emerging infection? Emerging infections are diseases in which the incidence in humans has increased in the past two decades or threatens to increase in the future. The term emerging disease also includes newly identified infectious agents that cause public health problems. And this is in contrast to a re-emerging infection, which is a disease that was once considered to be a major global health problem, then wasn't a public health threat, but is now showing an upward trend. The emergence or re-emergence are often due to changes in the environment, such as urbanization, deforestation, ease of global travel, climate change, and weak healthcare systems, as well as interactions between humans and disease vectors. With that in mind, in this issue, the team from Mount Sinai St. Luke's chose to focus on three diseases in particular, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, Chikungunya virus, and Zika virus. To make their recommendations, the authors pulled data from a variety of sources. Recommendations with regards to MERS come from 104 articles, reviews from the WHO, CDC, and Saudi Arabian Ministry of Health websites. Recommendations on Chikungunya come from 82 articles, including four RCTs, as well as guidelines from the WHO and CDC. And lastly, for the Zika recommendations, the authors combed through 38 articles, as well as the WHO and CDC guidelines again. All right, so I think the best way to go about this is disease by disease. As with past episodes, we won't follow the issue directly for ease of listening, but we promise to cover all the material. Let's start with MERS. MERS is a single-stranded RNA coronavirus. It was first identified in Saudi Arabia in 2012 during an outbreak that eventually spread to 26 countries. After the initial outbreak, it wasn't until 2015 when a second outbreak occurred in South Korea in which 186 people were infected. In this outbreak, a returning traveler infected 28 individuals. Later, in a second hospital, another patient infected 82 others. And that, right there, is why this issue is important. Absolutely, and it's also why standard precautions are also important. MERS is spread zoonotically, with transmission to humans likely occurring via contact with camel saliva, milk, or meat. Human-to-human transmission also occurs via droplets or fomites. In one case series, 74% of infected patients had no known animal contact, so just because you live a camel-free life does not mean you're not necessarily not at risk. Well, I do generally live a camel-free life, but I guess that won't be enough. Anyway, the incubation period here is between 5 and 12 days. The median age of infected patients is 50 years, with a paucity of cases in children and a slightly higher prevalence in men. At least 2,100 cases have been documented worldwide, with 36% resulting in death. When considering the differential for a potential MERS patient, you'll want to consider your typical respiratory pathogens like adenovirus, human metanumovirus, RSV, and rhinovirus. You'll also want to consider the common bacterial causes of pneumonia, 
like strep, mycoplasma, and staph. And if the season's right, you should also consider influenza. Of course, you shouldn't be considering MERS at all without appropriate travel or contact history, and such recognition should ideally be done in the pre-hospital phase. Pre-hospital personnel who have identified a possible MERS case should place a mask on the patient and notify the receiving ED of a potential MERS patient. In addition, supportive care with supplemental oxygen and basic airway interventions should be all that's needed. Given the impressive rates of nosocomial spread during the Korean outbreak, once in the ED, any patient with suspected MERS should be identified and given a mask. These patients should be placed in a private room under droplet precautions. These basic steps are so, so, so important. In one prospective study in a Riyadh hospital, more than half of MERS infections occurred in the ED. That's got to be an ED director's worst nightmare. That definitely would be. Let's move on to H&P. As you mentioned just a second ago, a thorough travel history is paramount. Ask about areas visited, contact with animals, chemoprophylaxis, and vaccination status. With respect to symptoms, MERS often begins with a fever, cough, myalgias, arthralgias, and a sore throat. One-third also reports some vomiting and diarrhea. On physical, fever and tachycardia are the most common findings. Beyond this, MERS unfortunately doesn't have any particular characteristic findings. Which is why you'll have to rely on diagnostic studies to really clinch the diagnosis. In the appropriate clinical setting, PCR of nasal secretions or tracheal aspirates in intubated patients should identify the virus. Serologic testing with ELISA, immunofluorescence assays, and protein microassays are also available. Of note, these tests are not traditionally available and will have to be obtained in conjunction with your ID specialists and the Department of Health. No other specific lab work is indicated beyond what one would order in typical cases of fever and tachycardia. Interestingly, in one study, compared with those with influenza-like respiratory illnesses, those with MERS actually had a lower white blood cell count, lower neutrophil count, and higher transaminases. Hmm, higher transaminases. I wonder what causes that. As for imaging, a chest x-ray should be obtained to rule out focal consolidations. Although not diagnostic, you would likely see interstitial changes in the periphery. On CAT scan, you'd see ground glass changes. I think the real take-home here is that you should work up fever and tachycardia as you always would, but in those with high suspicion, involve the Department of Health and your ID specialists early to gain access to the appropriate assays, which aren't available in most facilities. That's going to be a recurring theme throughout this episode. Let's move on to treatment. For now, at least, first-line treatment for MERS is supportive. Antiviral agents have been tested in in vitro models with some success, but none are specifically recommended at this time. Additionally, there are also two vaccines that have been developed, but neither has gone to clinical trial. Keep your eyes out for them in the future if you plan on traveling to the Middle East. Disposition for the patient will depend largely on their clinical status. Those with hypoxia, significant dehydration, electrolyte derangements, or multi-organ failure will certainly require admission. Studies have also shown that older patients or patients with comorbidities are at increased risk for mortality, and they too will usually need admission. And if the patient is well enough to be discharged home, be sure to inform the patients and their families about the possibility of droplet and fomite transmission. Encourage isolation and the liberal use of a respiratory mask until conclusive testing is complete. Well, that wraps up MERS. Let's move on to the next virus in this issue, chikungunya. Chikungunya virus is an RNA virus from the Togoviridae family. It's transmitted through bites from the Aedes aegypti or Aedes albopecus mosquito. Vertical transmission with long-term fetal neurocognitive delays have also been reported on rare occasions in the past. The first outbreak of chikungunya occurred in Tanzania in 1953, and since then there have been outbreaks throughout Asia and Africa, which then spread throughout Europe and the United States via infected travelers. The largest outbreak occurred on the island of La Réunion in the Indian Ocean, in which 35% of the population was infected. As for here in the U.S., there have been 4,059 travel-related cases, 
infecting patients in every state except Wyoming. In addition, there have been over 5,000 cases of local transmission. The typical incubation period of chikungunya is three to seven days. After this period, patients develop high-grade fevers lasting up to 10 days. 20 to 80% will develop a rash, either vesicular, bolus, or maculopapular. Others have reported headaches, myalgias, GI symptoms, and severe fatigue. The real defining feature here, however, are the arthralgias, which are usually symmetric and involve the distal joints like the wrists, fingers, and ankles. It's this intense pain from which the virus derives its name. Chikungunya literally means that which bends up in the Makande language. As if intense pain isn't enough, up to 50% of patients develop chronic joint symptoms that are relapsing and remitting, lasting months to years. Years of pain, that sounds awful. Other severe sequelae are rare, but include group B strep, cranial nerve palsies, meningoencephalitides, myocarditis, hepatitis, and multi-organ failure. When considering the differential for chikungunya, the two most important diseases to consider in travelers are malaria and dengue. In the setting of outbreaks, Ebola, Lassa, and Marburg should also be considered. More common infections to consider include meningococcal infection, acute HIV, group A strep, influenza, and mononucleosis. The less common infections still worth considering include measles, rubella, parvovirus B19, Zika, leptospirosis, African tick bite fever, relapsing fever, and typhoid or paratyphoid fever. And lastly, in the non-infectious category, consider seronegative rheumatoid arthritis and other causes of inflammatory joint disease. Wow, that's quite the list. And it sounds like you named every rare viral infection out there and then threw in some non-infectious processes as well. Fair enough. Just remember that the defining feature of chikungunya on H&P will be fever with joint pain, along with, yes, your standard nonspecific complaints associated with any viral illness. Let's move on and discuss care. Pre-hospital care for those with possible chikungunya infection is limited to supportive measures, practicing universal precaution. Isolation is required until other travel-related illnesses can be ruled out. On exam, in addition to fever and tachycardia, patients with chikungunya infection often have symmetric swelling of the joints. If a rash is present, it may appear on any part of the body. In terms of a workup, as with MERS, your standard workup for fever and tachycardia is recommended. Although nonspecific, a number of lab abnormalities have been reported including elevated LFTs, lymphopenia, hypocalcemia, and rarely thrombocytopenia. Specific tests for chikungunya virus include RT-PCR for viral RNA and ELISA-IFA for antibodies. Such tests will have to be performed in conjunction with your local Department of Health, in labs at the CDC, at the California or New York State Department of Health, or in a single commercial lab that also offers the test. In addition, a single test to simultaneously test for chikungunya, Zika, and dengue is also currently being developed. Though, to be honest, I'm sure the listeners appreciate your honesty, so please go ahead. Nailing an exact diagnosis doesn't drastically change the treatment course as no specific treatment exists. General supportive measures like analgesics, antipyretics, and IV fluids are all that's usually needed. A short course of steroids might also be appropriate for patients with chronic joint pain. And it's worth mentioning that several vaccines for chikungunya virus have been developed, although none have been fully licensed yet. Okay, so there is one special population to discuss here, and that's neonates. While pregnant mothers themselves aren't specifically at increased risk, neonates born to mothers with high viral loads are at risk for severe neurologic and cardiac complications, and these can include neurocognitive delays and even death. In older children, a higher prevalence of neurologic and dermatologic manifestations have also been reported. In terms of ED disposition, most patients with chikungunya virus are suspected chikungunya virus less than 65 years old and without significant comorbidities can be safely discharged. Remember to counsel them on using insect repellent to minimize spread and educate them on the long-term chronic joint symptoms that they may experience. 
For patients with comorbidities, severe illness, or those in whom you are ruling out other infectious illnesses, such as dengue or malaria, admission may be more appropriate. All right, so that wraps up chikungunya virus. The last emerging disease to discuss today is Zika. Zika is an RNA virus from the Flaviviridae family. While the first reported human infections were from Africa in the 1950s, the first large outbreak wasn't until 2007. Perhaps most well-known to us all, on February 1st, 2016, Zika virus was declared a public health emergency by the WHO due to its association with congenital microcephaly. While Zika is mostly transmitted via the Aedes mosquito, it can also be transmitted via blood transfusions, sexual intercourse, or vertically from mother to fetus. After an incubation period of two to seven days, patients typically develop the standard viral constellation of symptoms, including fever, maculopapular rash, conjunctival irritation, and arthralgias. Zika has been associated with an increased incidence of group B strep, meningoencephalitis, various congenital orbital syndromes, as well as the previously mentioned microcephaly, which brought Zika to the global stage. As Zika presents very similarly to any nonspecific virus, the differential, not surprisingly, includes any viral illness. In returning travelers, don't forget to include dengue, yellow fever, and West Nile in your differential. In terms of pre-hospital care, supportive care with IV fluids and oxygen are all that's needed. Like the other emerging diseases, a thorough travel history is paramount, focusing on areas visited, sick contacts, animal bites and contacts, and chemoprophylaxis and vaccination status. Specifically with respect to Zika, on review of systems, patients usually complain of a fever associated with conjunctivitis, headache, and arthralgias. And as such, on physical, these are the exact things you'll be looking for. Bilateral conjunctivitis and a fine pruritic maculopapular rash spread diffusely over the body without any characteristic distribution. Check out figures 1 and 2 on page 7 for some great rash images. Total aside, but did you notice how jacked the arm is in figure 1? Pretty impressive. Alright, let's bring it back in. We're almost at the end here, Jeff. Let's move on to testing and treatment. Unlike MERS and chikungunya, Zika infection can potentially be made as a clinical diagnosis in any patient who traveled to an endemic area within the last one to two weeks, presenting with a low-grade fever, frontal or retroorbital headache, a maculopapular rash, arthralgias, and non-purulent bilateral conjunctivitis. For confirmation, real-time RT-PCR of the serum, urine, or CSF can be done. These tests are typically only available at regional labs, or they must be sent out to the CDC. IgM serum antibodies can also be tested to confirm the diagnosis. However, there is some cross-reactivity to similar flaviviruses, so this isn't as reliable. Oh, and this probably goes without saying, but it's especially important in those with concern for Zika. Don't forget about a pregnancy test in any woman of childbearing age. As for treatment, acetaminophen is preferred initially until severe dengue is ruled out. NSAIDs can be administered after the patient has been afebrile for at least 48 hours. While for the most part treatment is supportive, pancaspase inhibitors and CDK inhibitors have shown potential promise in treating and curing Zika infection. Neither are FDA approved just yet. Similarly, vaccines are in the pipeline with plans to complete development in the next one to five years. However, with de-escalation of the crisis, that date may be pushed back. But back to treatment. In the event that a patient is pregnant or plans to get pregnant in the near future, follow-up should be arranged with ID and with high-risk obstetrics as no further testing is indicated in the ED. Patients should be informed that the risk for congenital defects is believed to be highest in the setting of first trimester exposures. For patients who are traveling to endemic areas, they should be advised to avoid mosquitoes and wear insect repellent at all times. And for females found to be Zika positive who are not yet pregnant, they should be advised to use appropriate birth control for at least eight weeks. In Zika positive males, barrier protection should be practiced for at least six months. And lastly, as for disposition, since the vast majority of Zika infections are only mildly symptomatic, 
most patients can be safely discharged home with follow-up and education regarding mosquito repellent and birth control methods to prevent further spread. So I think that about covers the May issue with respect to the viruses, but there are two quick points I also want to cover that are applicable to all three emerging diseases. Consider ordering dengue titers and malaria peripheral smears to rule out these infections early in the course of acute illness and ensure that your ED has a protocol in place to evaluate patients concerning for these infections and follow up the results that return after the patient has already been discharged. Great thoughts to keep in mind as you work these patients up. Let's wrap up this episode with some key points and clinical pearls from this month's issue. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, is caused by an RNA virus that is spread by camel saliva, milk, or meat. Human-to-human transmission occurs via droplets or fomites. After a 5-12 to day incubation period, patients with MERS typically present with fever, cough, shortness of breath, vomiting, and diarrhea. Testing for MERS should be performed in conjunction with the DOH and is done using RT-PCR, ELISA, or IFA. Treatment of MERS is largely supportive. Vaccines are in development using immunoglobulin antibodies for MERS survivors. Chikungunya virus is an RNA virus that is transmitted via mosquito bites or through vertical transmission. After an incubation period of 3 to 7 days, those with chikungunya virus classically present with fever and symmetric distal arthritis. Other nonspecific infectious findings include headache, vomiting, diarrhea, rash, and fatigue. Common lab abnormalities for patients infected with chikungunya virus include elevated LFTs, lymphopenia, hypocalcemia, and rarely thrombocytopenia. Testing for chikungunya virus requires RT-PCR, ELISA, or immunofluorescence assay and should be done in conjunction with the Department of Health. Treatment for chikungunya virus is with pain control and possibly steroid therapy with referral to a rheumatologist for long-term management of chronic joint pain. Consider admission for patients over 65 with significant medical comorbidities who are thought to have a chikungunya infection. Neonates born to mothers with high chikungunya viral loads are at risk for severe neurologic and cardiac complications and even death. Zika is an RNA virus which is spread via mosquito bites, blood transfusion, sexual intercourse, and vertically. Zika commonly presents with fever, rash, headache, conjunctivitis, arthralgias, and myalgias after a 2-7 to day incubation period. Zika can be diagnosed clinically, but if confirmation is needed, send RT-PCR or IgM serology with the assistance of your local Department of Health. Babies born to women with Zika are at risk for microcephaly. First trimester infection carries the highest risk of infection. Pregnant women or women who intend to be pregnant should avoid endemic areas. Treatment for Zika is supportive with acetaminophen until dengue has been ruled out. NSAIDs can be administered after the patient has been afebrile for 48 hours. All right, so that wraps up the May 2018 episode of Amplify, short and sweet as promised. As it is May and we're getting close to the Clinical Decision-Making Conference next month, don't forget to register early to reserve your spot. The beach, a golf course, a really solid omelet bar, oh, and a few good talks, definitely worth checking out. And for regular updates from EB Medicine, be sure to follow us on Twitter at EB Medicine. And for those of you who need CME, the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash E0518. So head over there right away and get your well-deserved credit. Talk to you all next month.